0: FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and one hundred five oh AM Palm
2: Springs. Okay, we're back, and joining us now is uh, Chris Swinney, and uh, he's the author of a couple of uh, great books I've uh, picked up, and and, uh, we're going to talk to him today. So uh, thank you for being on the show.
1: Hey Al, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it.
2: Oh no, I, I just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's our pleasure. Um, okay. So let's let's start out with um, uh, before we get into the books, let's start out with uh, you and uh, who you are and kind of uh, how you got into writing uh, true crime.
1: Okay, well, I work in law enforcement. Um, I'm married and I have two kids, but I've been in law enforcement for the last 15 years, and during that time. Uh, I work specialized units, including narcotics and homicide. And prior to getting to true crime writing, I I have another series called the Bill Dix Detective Series, which is crime fiction. And obviously I kind of based a lot of that on detectives that I know. Um, My two main characters are um, Bill Dix and Steve Peterson. And they kind of encompass a lot of the different uh, men and women I've worked with over the last 15 years, um so that's where i got those characters from but as i was writing that series uh i kind of made some friends and connections in the writing business obviously um that series all all three of those books have been best sellers as well um, but i met a, a an author and publisher by the name of rj parker and he just basically kind of put the bug in my ear about writing true crime he basically said hey chris you uh you know you have, you write crime reports, you're around crime, have you ever considered writing true crime? And I kind of bought it for for a while, to be honest with you, because, you know, at at my job I do enough crime reports and I didn't really want (laughs) to, you know, keep writing crime, if you will. But, um, you know, after reading some of the stuff, I started reading Ann Rule and and some of the other uh, noteworthy, true crime kind of authors and started getting kind of interested in it again. So I started writing um, short stories um, kind of true crime related. And then I just uh, came up with a topic one day with RJ Parker. Um, he's like, hey, I'm going to start this series. I'd like you to write the first book in the series. Uh, and there's this guy named Robert pickton who is a, a serial killer. And um, honestly, I, I did not know anything about um, Robert Picton. Um, but these ser- serial killers that uh, RJ is talking about are based in Canada. So, you know, like doing an investigation in patrol or one of the specialized units that I was a part of, I just started collecting as much data um, as I possibly could and then tried to start interviewing people related to that case uh, and then came up with a format that I got from RJ as far as how you wanted to book the flow. And then I just cranked it out like a long police report, basically. (laughs)
0: Um,
2: Well, where were you? um, uh, So... Um, obviously, so where do you? How do I say this? Where were you um, working in law enforcement? What what part of the country? Uh,
1: I work in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. I work for the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office, which is right along the peninsula. Okay. Um, just south of San Francisco, maybe uh, thirty about thirty miles south of San Francisco.
2: Yeah. Okay. Great. So so you had no idea about the uh, Canadian serial killer that uh, Robert Picton.
0: Yeah, I
1: had I had no idea. The ones I knew about were. Um, you know, folks closer to home, uh, maybe in Washington, Seattle area, or even in California, but I didn't know anything about Robert Pickton.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was pretty brutal. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> so, um, great. So, so now when you uh, how how do I say this? So, how do you um, not get too involved in the case that you cover? Because being in law enforcement, you you can't help but be somewhat involved. But, right. when you're doing a case for a book, does that sort of trigger the same feelings?
1: Yeah, it definitely does. and I, And I get this question asked quite a bit because um you know some of the people have seen that the books have done well, and they question, "Hey, why are you doing this what What is the motive? And to be honest with you, um the motive is twofold. One, I want to get the story out there so that if somebody um, in the general public, or even in law enforcement, see somebody exhibiting these types of behaviors, we may be able to thwart some type of serial killer um, or some type of attack. Um, but I do get it definitely involved with these cases. I, I realize as I'm writing them, you know, for example, in a Robert Pickton case, you know, a lot of his victims, many people in society um, wouldn't call victims because they were, um, working girls they were prostitutes um, they were drug addicts but for me if somebody if a crime is committed against somebody that's still a crime. So I kind of got involved with that and so one of the ways I helped myself deal with that was I donate all the proceeds um, from the book sales uh, for that book actually for all the books I write but for that specific book um, I donate proceeds to women's shelters and uh, victims of violent crime. So I kind of give you know I do the investigation. I get attached to these these victims. I do it for awareness, and then kind of a my little thing to do is to donate the proceeds um, to various victim groups to try to help you know women going through uh, maybe not serial killing but similar kind of violent situations.
2: Yeah, well that's great. That's very very commendable. That's uh, um. W- so when you go to a, a case, so so such as the Robert Pickton, so that was your. Uh, your one book that came out earlier this year. Uh-huh. Um, did you actually go to Canada then and start to talk to people?
1: No, I did all my stuff through uh, either phone interviews or emailing, um, or I would use friends that I've made over the years through social media to go contact people. But it was kind of tough because um, a lot of these people that were involved with these cases have retired. Um, and so it's hard to find a retired law enforcement official, whether it's in the United States, Oh. Um, or in Canada, yeah. so I would have to contact, like, uh, um, like the Toronto Star and various newspapers up there, try to get a hold of people who wrote those um, stories at the time, and then kind of just bug them a little bit, and some, some folks never responded, um, but others would, and so you would just try to really extract whatever little piece of information you get that might be unique to that case, um, so that's kind of how I did it
2: yeah and so how, how when you do, when you do something like that too how do how do people respond to you so you like when you're writing a book and you're kind of uh doing research and so you talk to victims families or or um cops or anybody in that sort of that were related to the crime are they kind of open to that
1: you know it's uh it's kind of interesting uh it's a good question the way it- kind of goes is everybody, you know how everybody has a different personality? Well, the same is true with with talking to people about these crimes. I've had some family members um, uh, not respond at all. I've had some respond and tell me that um, it's a waste of time and, you know, don't do this. We don't want to rehash old wounds, Um, that kind of response. I've had some that have been advocates. You have some family members uh, who have had somebody pass away or been murdered, like in the pig farmer case. You know, uh, he, he said he killed 49 people, but most people involved with in that case think that number could be over 200. And some of those families are supportive of people writing about it because um, they know, at least in my case, I'm not trying to glorify it to make a dollar because I donate my proceeds. So, so some have been receptive, but I've had the door so to speak, shut in my face. Um, And then on law enforcement side, you have some guys who are uh, similar as far as they will help you out and others who don't, who who won't. You know, I'm investigating a case right now that occurred in the United Kingdom, and obviously that's a long ways from here, Uh, and it's hard for me to find officers who want to talk to me because they don't think... um, what I'm doing is valid or, or worthwhile. So that, that makes that a roadblock for me. So I have to come up with unique ways. And sometimes, uh, just by myself identifying myself saying, Hey, I am in law enforcement. Um, I'm trying to do something good to to educate the public and I'm going to donate the proceeds uh, from this book, like I do with all my other books. Then people open up a little bit, but it's tough. You know, you could have somebody who's been, uh, dealing with something for years and then it's starting to, be less of a traumatic experience and then here comes Chris, you know, C.L. Swinney Chris calling you and wanting to bend your ear about it so it can be frustrating. So I, whatever happens, I kind of treat it like a traffic stop. Sometimes I pull somebody over and they're, they're okay and sometimes they call me names and sometimes they want to fight me. So I, yeah. I kind of <laughs> have that, I'm looking for that same, you know, reaction when I call about these cases.
2: Yeah, yeah, because you never know um, how emotionally they're involved in it, right? So, you know,
1: yeah, I agree. I mean, you could, we're talking about somebody. Ultimately, what I do is I remember that I'm talking about somebody's family member. So, you know, I'm, on a case that I'm working live in, in the town that I'm working in now, if it's a family member and it's a serious case, I have to be mindful of their feelings. So if somebody says, don't ask me, or or they don't want to talk about it, I drop it. You know, and I've, I've probably um, erased probably six or seven novels that were almost done because I ran into somebody like that. And
2: it just wasn't worth it for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there has to be integrity to it, right? Right. Right. uh, Now, uh, you know, this would be a really interesting one for you, question I'm thinking. Um, Because you're in law enforcement as well as doing the books, um, now, now for the most part, people I've interviewed always sort of say to me that the profilers of serial killers and these uh, types of people are not accurate. They're not very reliable. Um, not like we see on television shows. I, I, how do you, How? What's your take on that?
1: Um, well, let me see if I, if I understood the question correctly. Um, you have interviewed other folks, and they had said that folks who are doing profiling of serial, serial killers are kind of off with their assessment.
2: Yeah, like like because I've, I've interviewed a couple of people. Actually, a couple of profilers. Uh, that were part of law enforcement in the U.S. And Uh, they're kind of saying that most serial killers that get caught don't get caught from the profiling.
1: Oh, yeah, and that's true. Um, I would agree with them. Uh, Now, that's not to say that profiling is not important. It absolutely is. Um, Because it gives you a general basis to draw some conclusions from. But... Uh ultimately, uh, in my experience, either uh, in my own cases, and I haven't worked a ser- serial uh, killer case um, directly, but I've worked numerous, maybe hundreds of homicide cases, and the majority of the time a uh, profile can come in and say, hey, you're looking for a guy who's 36 years of age, possibly Hispanic, and, and give you this rundown. But that's usually not what we use to catch them. What typically happens, and oftentimes for serial killers, the way they're caught is uh, they, uh, two things, they either get caught in the act because they kind of let their guard down um, or they get caught because they want to get caught, meaning they're done playing around, they're done playing games, they're bored, and they they start leaving things and clues out there for law enforcement to get caught. But, for example, the pig farmer, uh, Mr. uh, he he got caught, uh, based on police work, but no profiling. And, and basically the law enforcement in, in Canada knew that stuff was going on at that farm, but they continually served search warrants there, and it wasn't until they finally found a piece of human remains that they broke that case open. Um, but on another scale, like, say, the, uh, the Killer Handyman, which is another case that, that's going to be coming out here soon, on the 25th of September that book's coming out, Um, he was caught on police work but it was based on forensics not a profiler Um, and and so most of the time the profiler um, can give you a general idea of who you may be looking for but oftentimes police work or just i gotta be honest with you dumb luck we sometimes catch
2: serial killers (laughs) yeah and i've heard that like someone that's They've had a parking ticket or something that's coordinated, and yep. they get caught, and it wasn't really... Somehow. A, yeah. That. Yeah.
1: I mean, just somehow something foolish like that, and we kind of joke in law enforcement that we never catch the smart ones. <laughs> you
2: know. Yeah. So, uh, so, so now on this, um, the Robert Picton case, that's the true yep. story of the pig farmer. So that was yep. in a suburb of Vancouver, I believe. Yep. Abbotsford, I think, was where he was at um so maybe give um the listeners a little kind of scenario like what happened okay
1: just like a real brief thing for him would be you know robert uh, his name is robert william pickton and he he um was actually raised on a pig farm uh the family had a, a large piece of property uh and um you know he he and his brother and sister they worked on the farm with his mom and dad but they didn't really know how to do the ins and outs. And what ends up happening is um, his parents, uh, Robert's parents, passed away, and that left the farm to him and his uh, sister and his brother. Well, obviously the uh, the process of taking care of pigs, slaughtering them, and then distributing them to uh, restaurants uh, in the area, they didn't really know how to do that. And so they started falling behind um, on their their process there as well as their payments. So eventually, what happens is Robert decides, hey, I'm going to sell part of our property. So he inherits the farm when his parents die, and then he sells a, a parcel, and and you know basically overnight he's a millionaire. Um, from that point on, he basically um, begins uh, to use quite a bit of uh, narcotics. Any kind of was uh, alluded to of doing that before. So he, his brother, and his sister pretty much have, you know, some of the best parties you could think of um, on this farm. And what Robert would do was he would go down uh, to a certain area and look for um, prostitutes, and he would lure them back to his um, farm by either telling them, hey, I'll give you uh, narcotics or I'll give you some cash, you know, something to that effect to To get them to come out to the farm, they they called the farm the Piggy Palace, which um, kind of was infamous for this case because um, so much crazy events occurred out there. But what Robert was doing, though, um, was uh, he would bring them out there. He would lure them in from like an area called the Low Track, which was downtown east side of Vancouver, and and then once he had his his way with them sexually, he would then kill them in a various ways. Um, uh, one of the ways he did it was to inject them with window, wa- window washer fluid, um, which would be a basically a, a pretty violent way to, to kill somebody. But um, once these women died, uh, he would then um, grind them up and feed them to his pigs on the farm. Um, and this was verified through uh, DNA and forensic Uh, evidence after this case finally broke open. So Robert, uh, you know, Mr. Pickton did that for quite some time, but eventually law enforcement started to look for the missing women down on the east side, and everything started pointing towards Robert in this Piggy Palace area. Um, After that, law enforcement served a search warrant out there. They kind of came up negative with, with what they were looking for, but they kept listing, you know, Robert, as this person of interest for these missing women, they had not uh, concluded that he was a killer at that time. Um, eventually, uh, he and his he gets involved with uh, a case in which there's a big party out there. One of the people leave, and somebody who leaves basically kind of drops the dime to law enforcement, saying, "Hey, there's other stuff going on out there, you know, besides just partying." Um, law enforcement ends up going out there and doing another search warrant, and at that time they end up finding um, human remains in one of the pig pens, uh, human uh, remains in a freezer, uh, and just kind of what you would call, you know, the, uh, uh, what would be a good term, you know, the motherlode, if you will, of just, you know, the most deviant sexual crimes you could think of. Um, In fact, one of the things he did was he had a a large dildo that he had uh, affixed to a 22 rifle, 22 caliber rifle, and he killed one of his victims that way. So, I mean, the guy was just kind of, you know, had lost his mind, and uh, he was then eventually arrested. Um, His brother actually um, was not charged, nor was his sister. Uh, All of those cases that occurred out there, 49 of which he was convicted of, um, all fell on him, and... uh, that's basically the case in in a nutshell
2: were they was so the the brother and sister do you think they just weren't involved and they didn't know about it or
1: I think uh, the brother and sister were involved there's no way they could have not known what Robert was doing because his brother uh, partied with him quite often Um, but I just think it was one of those cases where law enforcement had to get somebody in custody it was clear he was involved Um, he started making comments and bragged about killing the women um, law enforcement sent an undercover officer into the prison itself and he actually bragged about how he killed some of the women, so they knew he was involved but it, when I investigated the case it almost appeared as though law enforcement just didn't put um, a lot of effort into his brother and sister because they had Robert and that, by having Robert that meant they solved over 49 um, homicides, you know 49 missing women that were homicide cases so it was a huge case for Vancouver Police Department and the uh, the RCMPs, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police.
2: Yeah, they always get their men. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and now, was there a um, uh, so was there a particular mo? Like, did did he have to kill them in a certain way? Did it have to be a certain type of looking girl or age? No,
1: he he. You know, he the the thing about him was he was just living the life. He had no money prior, and now he came into money, and so he was living that life he always wanted to live. Um, you know, he he fits some of the M.O., though, of serial killers where he was abused, um, at least physically, not sexually that we know of, but physically by his mom and dad. In fact, one of the things he would do is, um, instead of getting beaten by his dad, he would run onto the farm and hide into a carcass of a pig. You know, you and I wouldn't, you know, mm-hmm. that doesn't cross our mind that that's what we would do when we were getting punished as a child, but that's what Robert did. So he was you know, he was raised in a different environment than most people were.
2: So how old was he when um, he got the money and started the parties?
1: Um, I think he was in his 40s,
2: so, uh, if I believe. Yeah, so, well, whenever, if he's kind of close to that, that's, you know. But that's not typical to just start killing at, let's say, your late 30s or 40s. You don't just turn it on and go, well, I'm just going to kill. Yeah
1: you're absolutely right and that's why this case was so interesting was because um, my opinion of of it and even when I wrote the book was uh, hey there's more on the bone here there's more meat on the bone yeah. uh, meaning I, I felt like there was a gap in his life that nobody really investigated or talked about um, and you know law enforcement again and and I kind of criticized some of what they did in the book and you know that's hard for me to do working in law enforcement but if we can't um, grow from our mistakes, then we're kind of, you know, already behind the ball, if you will. But um, I criticized the, the police department in that particular investigation just because I thought, what? How is it? I did, I had the same question as you. How in, in the world does a guy go so long in life and then, um, you know, not kill anybody, but then all of a sudden he kills at least forty-nine and possibly two hundred. Yeah. Um, so my personal belief is that um, there were killings. There was. Something that he had done, he he in his kind of mid um, teenage years, you know, he watched his mom kill a kid, um, and she kind of dumped him into the uh, water and uh, left the kid there because she struck him with her truck. So he was around violence. He was around uh, the, you know the killing of the pigs on the on the farm. Um, but I think he definitely did stuff that he just never got charged with.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree right. because uh, that that other case up in Canada, the Luca Magnato one, was the same. Yeah. Where you know he's killing animals, and then all of a sudden goes ten years, and then they catch him, you know, killing and dismembering and eating that person, and filming yeah. it, right? But I, you know, yeah. I say the same thing. So ten years, like you just you go from killing animals. Oh, I'll just do nothing yeah. for ten years. I right, just-
1: and that that kind of also rang true in the second book, uh, the Killer Handyman, where. He killed when he was younger, but then there's a 20-year gap. Um, you know, it goes from 76 to 96. There's a 20-year gap, but we don't know what uh, William uh, Patrick Fife did. And I guarantee you, um, if he did it in 76 and he does it in 96, that in between those 20 years, he definitely was involved with um, stuff that law enforcement does not know about.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, because you just don't turn it off.
1: Yeah, so, it doesn't know. turn off. And normally... You don't have somebody that can go. It, it's very rare for a serial killer to go that long. You know, twenty plus years. They usually either um, uh, get in custody for something different, um, or they end up dead, or killing themselves, or getting caught. There's usually something. It's very rare to have somebody go that long. And that that was one of the interesting things about um, Pickton's case, as well as um, Fife's case, was how you know what happened and, and why did law enforcement not go back. And, and what they'll tell you is they did research, they did try to connect them to other cases, but they did not have enough physical evidence to bring charges against them, to connect them to crimes and those gaps in their lives.
2: Yeah. Well, I guess sometimes it's tough to go back. It depends how far it is. Um, but at the same time, you know, um, for some, some sort of resolution for the victim's families of other crimes it's kind of a more important
1: yeah well, what we're seeing in california or at least in the united states is slowly these these dna databases are starting to get really big um and what they're trying to do is see if uh clothing or other items taken from crimes 20 30 years ago still contain dna on them um and so they're getting the they're getting some cold cases solved but you're right you know but what I noticed too in m- many of these cases that I was investigating was not a lot of physical evidence was was coming out. In the case of the Picton case, you know, these women that were the were victims uh, because of their their drug use and and kind of their separation from their their families and the life that they were choosing. Because many of the women there in the low track chose to be prostitutes. They they wanted to do that life, and consequently, when they were missing. Um, these missing persons reports wouldn't come out sometimes two or three years after the fact. So a lot of the families had just kind of stepped away and kind of just said, okay, well, we're never going to see you know Susie again. Yeah. And, and so that was kind of strange to me to see that. But you're right, and, and the closure needs to be done. And so um, somehow some of the people I talked to on the Pickton case said that there are cold cases connected to the missing persons, Because they had what was called a a women's uh, missing persons list for that area, and there is a group of detectives still working that case, trying to ID um, or locate the remains of those bodies. So it's it's still something important to law enforcement, but it moves like a turtle; it's super slow.
2: Yeah, there's only so many um, so many people, so much time and effort they could put into something like that. Yeah, and and I'm I'm sure what uh, now, Picton. So what did he get? A life.
1: Yeah, in in uh, you know Canada, you get that twenty five years with uh, you know life imprisonment, but with the possibility of parole. Right. So I think he's I think he was gonna. Um, I mean, I'm uh, trying to look at my notes I have because I had a little notes for you, but I think he's supposed to be uh, possible to get out. I think at the age of ninety. So, uh, but the thing, the thing about Picton that's scary is even though he's 90, um, he's said that he's going to go back to doing what he knows how to do best, which is murder innocent women. Yeah. So, you know.
2: you know, if he lives, I, you know. I don't think he'll make it. Yeah. And people (laughs) like that, they, they still, it's, it's pretty hard for them. It'd be like Manson. It's hard for a, um, a panel to kind of go, yeah, let him out. You know, yeah, I it, agree. It gets I agree to a point, you know, because there's too much notoriety around it, and um,
1: oh yeah, because whoever says, "Yeah, go ahead, and let him go," can you imagine the press on that? You
2: know? Oh yeah, yeah, you wouldn't want to be that. No,
1: you <laughs> no. don't want to be that person. That no, especially that.
2: nowadays. I mean, it, I mean, because the media is outrageous now with everybody oh, yeah. with phones and and everybody, everything gets filmed and and everything gets put on the right. news, and then they have to analyze it for 24 hours. <laughs> Right, (laughs) and it kind of gets overdone. So I no, I wouldn't want to be that person. No, right, you know, and and so now you got this new book, um, the Killer Handyman. It comes out on the twenty fifth, I believe, is the date.
1: Yep, comes out twenty fifth of September.
2: And now it's it's so true. Now this one's is interesting because it's it's another Canadian. You know, I I I didn't know there were serial killers up there. They're so polite. Did, yeah. Did, now, did the serial killers say sorry? No, I.
1: <laughs> no, I, I don't. So far, none of you guys. None of these people have.
2: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that's that's terrible. I'll get some bad mail you know. for this. Uh, now, <laughs> now, um, so he was the killer handyman. So what did that mean? Like he was going to people's homes and being a handyman?
1: Yeah. So what he did was um, he has kind of an interesting story about him because um, you know he's. He, For some reason, he's raised by his aunt at a young age, but then many years later, he kind of reconnects with his mom. Um, But he has some traits of a regular, quote-unquote, regular citizen in which he um, does a little schooling. He finishes um, or gets close to getting his um, high school diploma, um, and then he becomes kind of a handyman. But what happens with him is he ends up getting a...
0: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash Achieve today. Uh,
1: addicted to drugs, and so he moves actually to Montreal um, hoping to get off drugs and actually gets into a treatment program, um, and he does so, so well there that he actually, you know, staff says he gets off the drugs and he becomes a counselor, but um, I was unable to verify that fact, uh, and what he does later on in his life suggests that he did not get off drugs, but he actually was a person that people would say was a good handyman. He, he was kind of scruffy, uh, rough around the edges a little bit, but you know, he, he would do tasks as build fences, do roofs. He even put in a pool one time. Um, and what his deal was though, is he did that for money, um, to support his habit. And then he moved a lot. He was kind of a, a drifter. He moved all around, um, Canada. So he, he needed money to do that. Um, but, The reason why he's known as the handyman killer is because uh, the women that he ended up um, murdering, uh, it would start with him picking out a victim, and it usually was kind of a a middle-aged woman uh, who lived alone, and really what he would do is walk up to the house, knock on the door, and um, one of the victims would open the door, and he would say, hey, you know, I'm William, you know, it looks like your house needs some work, can I help you out, and... If they said, oh, yeah, you know, you could help us out, they'd invite him in, and um, he'd go inside. But as soon as he got inside and the door shut, it, it was a uh, homicidal rage. Um, he would end up uh, killing these women, um, and, and oftentimes he would do it for, like, money. Um, so it would be kind of like a, a theft. And, and a lot of cases in the beginning, he actually would, and it was suggested that he would have to torture or beat these these victims to get their bank pin card numbers, and they would give it to him, and then he would still end up killing them, which was kind of a tragedy, you know, because it starts out as this guy being desperate; he needs money. These women give it, give him their pins, and he ends up killing them anyway. Um, so that's what made William so dangerous: was that he played the part of a of a handyman, somebody trying to help people, but yet he preyed on middle aged uh, women who lived alone.
2: Yeah, well, so he was fairly young then, eh?
1: Yeah, he, he, um, he was young at first, well, his, his whole, uh, beginnings of, of going down the wrong path actually started when he was 17. Um, he got into some trouble, uh, he went to like a, a home for kind of, or a, kind of a facility for juveniles, got out, but then when he got out, he still kind of got in a lot of, um, trouble. He went back into custody and, and, uh, in, uh, 1976, he's out on a pass, um, from that facility, ends up killing a lady. Um, And then just calmly returns back from his past, serves out his time, and then he kind of goes about his life. Um, And what we learn later is that she wasn't the only victim. There was three or four other victims at that time. But then that's where we get this 20-year gap, and everybody in law enforcement out there especially wants to know what in the heck did he do um, in those 20 years. So it's pretty pretty scary for me to think of what he could have done or what he did do.
2: Oh yeah, it's crazy. You know, people. Like, uh, yeah, that's just yeah, that's crazy. So, yeah. <laughs> so he got he eventually got put away then for life, or
1: yeah, he got the same charges. So in Canada, you get the same thing. You get the uh, twenty five. Um, you get twenty five. What is it? Twenty five years? Or no, you get life imprisonment with the possibility of parole in twenty five years. And one of the things different in Canada in the United States versus Canada is, you know, like you said earlier, they're not going to probably parole these people, but they could get out. You know, in the United States, if you murder somebody, um, you're going to get added sentences, you know, you know, five life sentences or whatever, so that they ensure there's no way for you to get out. Um, in Canada, you know, you can kill one person or a thousand and get the same sentence. Right. So it's kind of, kind of for me, on a law enforcement side, it kind of irks me a little bit, only because I feel... Um, you know, for example, with uh, Mr. Fife and, and the killer handyman, he, he, we find out later after he's in custody for four murders that he committed five other ones, and law enforcement, to get him to admit to those um, uh, cases, they, they agreed to move him to a different prison because he didn't like the one he was in. So they negotiated and, and he agreed so he confessed to those five murders and the details that he provided uh, made it clear that he actually was the murderer but he didn't get any extra time for those five murders so for me it's frustrating but I only know you know the United States way of business I don't know Canada's way of business so that's what it was tough for me to, to
2: adjust to yeah. yeah yeah well I think it's just yeah it's just it well it's, it's apples and oranges it's a it's a different place so right uh, they don't televise the the uh <laughs> the uh murder trials like this so
1: yeah yeah and i i, I wish they didn't do it out here you know i yeah. there's a lot of things that canada does that i really support and think is is well done you know yeah
2: yeah cause and that, i wish
1: we didn't cuz i think some of the people in the united states that do what they do are doing it just for fame
2: yeah it becomes uh, a circus yeah. right yeah uh, it, it is a
1: circus no doubt about it
2: yeah and it's and 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 and, and no matter what I still think that they all change their behaviors because when you're televised every day and you have millions of people watching you, so the prosecutors, the defense, the judge, everybody's affected by that
1: Yeah,
2: and it it just shouldn't be and 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 then everybody judges you know so you have you know a trial going on and and an officer goes up and testifies so then for the next week you have all this judgment about oh, I didn't like the way he said that, or I don't like the way, yeah. and you have all this stuff going on, and it's like, that's not what it's supposed to be about, right? So Yeah, I
1: agree with you. That's it's the wrong... It's impact, it definitely, I think you're correct. It impacts everybody's way of thinking, and, and, and then if you're impacting somebody's way of thinking, you're going to uh, affect how they're making decisions.
2: You know? I, yeah, exactly. Uh, so. I, I think it's the wrong thing. I don't think it's serving justice. I think it's just, it's serving something else, but it's certainly not getting the right answer but
1: yeah i agree and you know hopefully change is coming but you know it's tough it, it's tough in law enforcement right now you know, there's a whole new thing taking over law enforcement right now with the the killing of cops um, you know we lost uh eight officers in a period of 10 days last two weeks ago and you know it, it's there's a change in society i don't and it's happening even in canada where law enforcement's really under the gun and it, it's hard to be under the gun and pumping gas and getting shot in the back of the head and also going out and trying to investigate these cold murder cases or these serial killer cases you know it's just a it's a handful right now and but, but the the, the, the tension
2: stopped. the tension in the u s with the police um is something well it's just outrageous um cops being killed and 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 the whole thing uh, you now do you think there's a particular Reason or something in your opinion that makes it so extreme in the yeah, U.S.? I
1: think, I think so. You know, I'm, I'm 40 years old, so I've been around a little bit, and honestly, the the um, and it's hard to, to admit to it, but there's been some significant mistakes made by law enforcement in the last couple of years, um, including you know, law enforcement shooting an unarmed unarmed black man running away from them that it just kind of made the people snap again. Mostly, law, you know, mostly African-American people are extremely frustrated, but, but not all of them. It's a certain group or a certain um, you know, age or, or, or education or demographic situation. Over, overwhelmingly, uh, law enforcement is still pretty supported in the United States, but there's a large group of, of people who are angry. And in some instances, they have the right to be angry. Um, And law enforcement is not doing anything to uh, make the relationships better. But uh, what's happening, in my opinion, is that these smaller groups, uh, one that comes to mind is um, Black Lives Matter, are kind of taking it to law enforcement in in a manner in which we're not prepared to deal with. And I think these folks who have mental health issues on the fringes of these groups, um, whether fueled by media or their own inner demons are feeling it's acceptable to be, uh, you know, walk up behind a deputy pumping gas and shoot them, you know, 16 times. You know, I, I think there's a disconnect by certain uh, demographic in our communities right now. Um, and I see it every day. Uh, you know, I, I work in patrols, which means I'm out in the general public every day, and every day during my 12-hour shift, I see all uh, spectrums, if you will. I see um, people who are supportive and wave at me. I see people who run for me. I see people who try to fight me. I see people who try to bait me into comments by uh, making comments about me or my ethnicity or my profession. They have their camera phones rolling, and they're trying to get paid. So there's so much going on um, right now, and, and what you see in the media uh, is really kind of fueling these fires, and that, that's frustrating, and that's that's what I see. But I have friends who have said, hey, this is kind of like the 70s, you know, where law enforcement was not really looked highly upon in the in the 70s, but the difference being is um, you didn't have somebody in the 70s walk up to a cop and shoot him in the back of the head and then unload the entire magazine into them, you know?
2: It, yeah, it but do, do you think the, the, um, the amount of guns available in the country is, is an issue?
1: So that's an interesting thing because um, I was a uh, part of a task force, and one of the um, responsibilities of that task force was um, firearms for the, for the state. Um, and I would say to you that I think there is an exorbitant amount of firearms in our country. Um, and when you asked me that question, I, I chuckled a little bit because, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword to me. I feel we're allowed to, um, or we should be allowed to have firearms, um, and I think we should be able to protect ourselves. But i got to say that it's in, in my experience, and I'm just basing this on my 15 years in law enforcement and the hundreds of cases that I've worked, that if somebody wants a gun, they're going to get it. So if you change the laws, if you change the rules, if you do that kind of stuff, I don't think it's going to prevent what we see, you know, and I could use for examples, um, the Sandy Hook massacre at the elementary school, um, that mom owned those guns legally and had those guns locked up in her home. Her son uh, murdered her, uh, got her guns from the safe, and then went to the school and, did what he did you know so that's legally possessed guns in the hands of a psychopathic killer
2: yeah know? yeah I, I i see that i just sort of think that um that they you know i you know it's a real touchy subject i i think that uh, not control but some sort of responsibility or regulation has to be put on it um yeah i you I know because so. i don't think it's um because there's too many other countries that don't have as big of an issue, and they have more regulations. And yeah, I
1: don't have a problem. And, you know, I'm law enforcement, so I'm. it doesn't necessarily mean I'm gung-ho for guns.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. No, you I, don't. Know, I
1: don't have a massive arsenal at my home. I'm not uh, saying that we all should get every gun we could possibly own and that kind of thing. I'm with you on, on certain respects, but for me on law enforcement, I get... Um, for a lack of a better terms, handcuffed. For example, some of what the Obama administration wants to do with firearms, um, that impacts me on a professional level um, and a personal level by him um, and his administration suggesting we get rid of assault r- rifles, for example. That means um, when I go to work and I run into somebody who has one from the pre existing tens of thousands in the United States, I'm severely undergunned um and an, an example would be the bank robberies in l a in which officers had to go into a gun store to get assault rifles to to challenge and end up um, incapacitating those two bank robbers you know that that changed law enforcement tremendously, and it changed guns um in my opinion. the guns have always been in our country right. you know I've read a lot about uh, the Winchester family and some of the other large families uh, and gun manufacturers, and you know the United States has some of the biggies in the in the world. So they're here, and those companies have a lot of money to fight any kind of change in policy. So I think that battle is 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 continuing to happen behind closed doors, but it's coming our way. But I wouldn't as a law enforcement official, wouldn't have a problem with um, more regulations if it would make sense for law enforcement to still do their job but also protect americans with their rights you know per the constitution so you know that's tough like you said it's a touchy subject it really is
2: yeah yeah it is um yeah well you know the gun culture is part of america and that's just what it is and that's just i agree you know you can't really compare it to other countries but i think that they should uh i mean even if they uh you know regulate it some some instances it might help in some cases you know it couldn't it couldn't make it worse but but they you shouldn't know, be I taking think, it away from law enforcement i mean you guys need what you need um i i i'm thinking more about uh uh you know just you know this, there's some people that can just pick up guns you know in different shows and different things without really
1: Yeah we we know. see that problem a lot so we have Nevada next to California obviously and there's you know, almost once a month, a gun show in Nevada, in Reno, Nevada. And you can buy stuff there that you can't get in California because California has tougher regulations but um, these task forces are up there uh, specifically working those gun shows, and when they cross the line, these people are getting arrested. You know, but it's hundreds of people with only 10 agents. You know, yeah. <laughs> so how do you, how do you do it? Like, how do you enforce it? You know, and, and yeah. in Nevada, with their laws, it's all good what they're doing. But in California, some of the stuff they're bringing in like high capacity magazines or um, silencers or fully automatic weapons and that kind of stuff it's not legal in California you know i mean i'm a law enforcement officer i'm not allowed to have a fully automatic weapon in california, so and I don't have a problem with that and i and i'm also with you if you if you could change some of the regulations and prevent just one massacre, I think it makes sense you know,
2: yeah, yeah, I think it's just it makes sense it's just uh Probably never happened in our life, but uh,
1: <laughs> probably it. not. But we can both at least sound like we know what we're talking about. Yeah, you can
2: at least pretend, <laughs> you know. It, it, so now, now I've noticed now um, yeah, on both books you have um, Peter Vronsky and, uh, of course, R.J. Parker, uh, mm-hmm. and are good friends of the show. It's actually Peter Vronsky's doing a launch for one of my other shows, Dark Shadows, a uh, two, oh, cool. uh, two hour. Uh, premiere actually we've uh, done a lot of pre-recording for it so uh oh that's cool really really good guy i really like peter um and um so uh, what was it like to work with them
1: um it's been pretty good uh just communicating via email i haven't actually uh, met up with him in person but uh you know rj's parker is saying hey you need to talk to peter and peter is saying hey this This guy referring to me looks like he can write pretty good, so let's come together and and start doing stuff. So, I'm the newbie. Mm -hmm. You know, Peter and and RJ have been in the business longer than I have, especially when it comes to true crime writing. So, um, I've deferred a lot of my questions or thoughts or um, things like that to them, and they've been uh, completely supportive, you know. And for some reason, um, you know, the the first book, the the Robert Pickton um, Pig Farmer Killer, was number one, and it's been on a bestsellers list since uh, several um, bestseller lists since it came out. Uh, and then the second one is, is on best bestseller list right now, and it's just available for pre order. So having guys like that in the business, um, well known, well respected, and them giving me a bit of their time for me to bounce questions off of them has just been huge, and I always to thank them as much as I can, you know, so yeah. it's been
2: pretty cool. Yeah, you're pretty lucky to be with them and, and you know, Peter, I think that's amazing. You know, he was, uh, went over to Russia back when Lee Harvey Oswald shot the president, hey, eh? and yeah, he, he was the first person granted permission to go over and interview all of his friends over there and stuff. Yeah. That's amazing. That's,
1: <laughs> that's pretty awesome stuff, yeah. I mean, I, I find that stuff fascinating. The more that I'm digging into my writing career as, as a true crime writer, I I reading all his stuff and looking at his interviews and um it's just pretty awesome to see that and I kind of you know try to model some of what I'm doing around the success that you've had you know yeah
2: that's 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 great I mean it, it'll only help and so what kind of influences do you have um outside of the work in that um so do you read certain books or watch certain movies or listen to certain yeah. music yeah
1: I do a lot of reading, um, and I think I mentioned a little bit earlier that I kind of look a lot at um, Anne Rule. Um, I, I liked her her way and her style, and I thought it was kind of fascinating some of the stuff that um, she has written over the years. And I haven't read all of her stuff yet, but I'm trying to trying to catch up, if you will, um, in, in that in that area. So I, I read a lot, and then um, you know I watch a lot of. Uh, videos and a lot of um, film uh, on serial killing or true crime stuff, and I gotta be honest with you, a lot of it I started looking at when I was trying to solve um, uh, homicide cases in the San Jose area, um, only only because I was thinking uh, some of my cases had some connections or some weird things that kept popping up, and I was wondering if there was clues there that we were missing and stuff, so. You know, I do a lot of reading. I watch a lot of um, videos and, and film and stuff. That's kind of like my influence. And then, you know, working in law enforcement for 15 years, I, I've worked uh, all throughout California. Um, I've been all across the country as a presenter for, for uh, things that I've done and, and my expertise and stuff. And I, I get a lot of uh, kind of input from folks that I meet throughout the country too. So that's kind of where I get my input.
2: Hmm. And so you, um, Zodiac. <laughs> yeah,
1: the Zodiac the I was Bay, reading about right? that uh, a couple months ago.
2: Yeah. So what do you think about that? Do you ever, did you ever kind of, um, come up with a, kind of a, a thought in your mind of how that went? And,
1: you know, um, it's funny when I was reading it just, uh, about maybe two months ago or so, I was reading that and I was just thinking to myself that, um, it would be interesting just me personally to look at the files, you know, and, and have a chance to kind of dive in there and see what I see. You know, so many things have been speculated about that case as far as, you know, did he die or is he dead? Um, you know, were there two of them? You know, there was some interesting stuff. But i got to say that as far as intelligence goes, and I think one of the premier reasons why that person was never captured in my mind um, was because he was too smart. Um, when you find somebody, and a lot of these serial killers are on the edge of being uh, brilliant. Um, and some of them are just, they have mental issues and their wires are crossed wrong, but some of them are um, borderline brilliant, sometimes even genius. And that case to me is fascinating, but more, one of the things I find interesting is that n- so far no um, person has been identified as a suspect. A lot of theories, you know, a lot of uh, speculation. But in in law enforcement or true crime, I don't know if you can get away with speculation, you know.
2: Mm. Yeah, no, uh, you know, it's it's just funny because we've had a lot of interviews this last, I don't know, over the summer, and we because uh, there's been a lot of books lately, and of course, uh, there's different, so all different theories. You're right, so it's just it, it's been it's been kind of bubbling up again, so.
1: Yeah, I did notice that and I was wondering, you know, trying to find out why and I think it's because well, at least one of my thoughts on it was is because it's so such a fascinating case and nobody ever figured it out.
2: Yeah, you know? yeah, it's true. And and
1: that I think that that fact alone, the fact that we don't have answers, I think it really um Well, yeah,
2: and then why did it stop?
1: Yeah, and, and the theories on that. Um, there was a book that I that I ordered when I was looking at this a couple months ago, called the most dangerous animal of all, um, and it's searching for my father and finding the Zodiac killer, by uh, Gary Stewart and Susan Mustafa. Mm-hmm. So I'm supposed to. That's um, on my to do list of reading that book, but that that book seems kind of interesting. And I noticed it's a pretty uh, serious bestseller, and it's through Harper Collins, which is one of the biggies, you know. So
2: mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. I, yeah, I you know I actually I was lucky I had. Um, more, you know, the um, site.com and mm-hmm. um, then I had uh, Tom Horan just did another book too, right, The Revisit It. Um, oh, okay. that's pretty interesting too. I like the theory about how, because uh, he talks mainly about the letters and how they are different.
1: Yeah, that's what I noticed too when I was looking at it was that I felt like they were different as well, and that's why um, there was that theory, or at least one of them was that you know, this guy, the original Zodiac Killer's son was taking over, and, and you know, or somebody connected to that case was taking over. But I agree with him. I think the letters are different.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's what um, he said. And then
1: begs it, yeah. the question was whether or not the second ones are legit or not, you know. Yeah,
2: or if it's the same or if it was more than <laughs> yeah. one killer. Right. And there's also the, the fact that he also brought up how, um, in the first letter, how there was things mentioned in it that they only had in the police report and that letter was at the newspaper before the police report. They could have had it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, there was yeah. there, there like he picked out some really interesting things. Like that's a good book if you're interested. And I know we had it's been it's been hot because the um, interview has been having huge amounts of uh, follows. Like it just it's still getting loaded two hundred a week. And this is oh like, wow. And what is, was the, what was
1: his name? Tom.
2: Uh, Tom Horan. He's Professor Thomas Horan. And, oh yeah,
1: Thomas Horn. Okay,
2: and um, but, but yeah, that, I'll
1: check it out because uh, I'm I'm like you, very interested in that case um, and uh, what you're saying that he's discovered sounds pretty awesome. I'd love to see. What it, was, well, it's just really like
2: interesting. That. I mean, there's no you can't. I mean, we're probably never going to really resolve what happened, but it's just I find it really fascinating that. To, um, there's new things that come out, new perspectives, a way of looking at it. And it's very, really interesting. The thing I like about it was that it was more, um, it was just an evidence sort of thing. It wasn't like... He was trying to tell you this is why and this is how. He was just like, look, mm-hmm. look at the differences and look at how these things happened.
1: Oh, that's cool. And it makes yeah, you kind so of he's not really—he's not forcing something down your throat. But he's just saying, hey, check out this stuff, and, and yeah. here's what it might mean. He's just
2: questioning some of the things and kind of going, hey, what's going on here, and why did this exactly. happen? And it's kind exactly. of—it makes you go, yeah, like why? You know, he takes a lot of things into account. that I like to—I like writers that go back to the time and and think about how. Um, how police communicated back then in the '60s—it's different than oh, yeah. now, right? Oh yeah. And 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 how how everything and even the newspapers and how they—it was just a different time, you know. People, uh, it, it, listeners, I get this all the time because we'll be talking about things and they don't realize how long it took for information to get out.
1: <laughs> right.
2: You know. Oh, back then it yeah. would take forever. Yeah. It was. It was. Yeah. It's crazy. It wasn't so instant.
1: Oh yeah! Nowadays it's pretty darn instant, especially with smartphones and all the other stuff. But yeah. back then it would take a long time. You're
2: right. Yeah, and you know, and I was I came along in the '60s, so I, uh, but I'll tell you, it's just like because we did the, the we did uh, cover JFK and RFK and all that, and it's pretty amazing to watch um, RFK come out and give one of his speeches, and at the beginning he had to tell his crowd the crowd that Martin Luther King had been shot, oh, and it geez. happened the day before. Oh, wow. And people were crying. So they didn't even know the next day. (laughs) Holy cow. And I was like, wow, it was that bad in the early 60s. Like, it was really, because there were so many people that didn't have a television. And if they did, they didn't have, let's say, more than a channel. It just wasn't such a big factor in their life.
1: Right.
2: I, That's I was, interesting. I was really, yeah, I was really surprised. But you know, you can watch the films. Like, there's so much, so much available now, and it's just like, it blows me away every time I go back and go through old history because it,
1: you know. Yeah, that is interesting. And I, I you know, I was born in the middle '70s, so, um, but, but for me, all this technology and the the, the way data travels and stuff is uh, just starting to catch on. But my, you know, my kids, they they laugh at me with my old devices and. Not yeah. be able to keep up with them, you know? <laughs> yeah.
2: But you know what? You just tell them, look, in 20 years, everything that they use right now that they're all, sh- they're all really hot on and, hey, you're you're old and all this, in 20 years it'll all be old dinosaurs. It'll be like dial-up phones to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and their kids will be going, you're, you're so old with whatever yeah. else is going on because, you know, yeah, it, go- exactly. it goes that fast. I mean, yeah. I still I'm have...
1: definitely fine. Yeah, I, I
2: still have six VCR players. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't <laughs> well, I don't use have them. Any of
1: those. I don't but use I, them. I remember what they look like, and I did use them.
2: And and I have some TVs too that are, have the big oh, okay. tubes, right? But <laughs> yeah. I I just feel really guilty about throwing stuff like that out.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, I remember that's those devices, but out here in California, especially, they're so big on. Recycling that they want you to get rid of those in the, the electrical recycling bins and you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff. So,
2: yeah, just, we, we
1: kind of do that just without even thinking about it, you know.
2: Yeah, just crazy, but it's just crazy how yeah. you know, perfectly good things, and we just keep. But anyway, that's enough about my age. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Well, uh, you know, it's certainly been interesting. Um, great, great conversation. Um, yeah,
1: I appreciate your time, Al. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, this has been very good. So, has um, been awesome. Yeah, thank you very much, and uh, and we have to do it again. This is uh, Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: I want to I to definitely keep riding, and hopefully I can keep uh, being a part of your program.
2: Oh, for sure, yeah, anytime. Uh, I'd love to okay. have you on again. That'd be fantastic.
1: Okay, thank you, sir. I appreciate
2: it. Yeah, thank you, you and now right, you well, have you. a good night.
1: You too, sir. Bye-bye. The
2: mission has been completed. The end. By George, he's got it. It is the end. (laughs) I'll see you. This
0: has been a production of the Z-Talk Radio Network. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all.